Hello, today we are joined by conductor Kari Turinen of the Vancouver Chamber Choir. Welcome to you, sir. How are you on this fine Friday? Thank you. I'm well. Enjoying the warmth, finally. <laughs> it is improving a bit, the weather. I'm from Alberta, so I'm very familiar with um, with real long, cold, but objectively beautiful winters where there's just a sense of space. Mm. And yeah. I do recall walking home from many evening concerts in minus 25 Celsius, but not quite noticing because there was such a glisten. And, you know, there definitely we hear that effect in in choral music um are there any pieces that come to mind when i mention nordic landscape or scandinavian landscape mm. one piece that i could men- mention is is the um suite called laponia mm. by uh, eric barryman berkman um which is really that is a depiction of the landscape um, in fairly modernistic means, but I think anyone who hears it will sort of understand the connection. But then, uh, I don't know, um, the music of Wilhelm Stenhammer from Sweden, lots of it is very, very tied to nature. Um, you'll find a lot of it, but I mean, choral music on the whole, there's, there's such a lot of it, which is sort of comes directly from poems which depict nature. So um, I think it's pretty general worldwide that there's a lot of nature depiction in choral music. Yes, that's true. And um, Canadian choral mm-hmm. music that uses graphic score to depict mm-hmm. some of that as well. Yeah, I think the, the, the score that I mentioned, Laponia, that it, it comes fairly close to something like the Schaefer pieces. Mm-hmm. I was going to mention Armory Schaefer. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, 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 you know, they're, well, they're, they're very well known those pieces all very well, but well known worldwide. And I think we in the Nordic countries at least have found a sort of um, common ground in, in that kind of music and the, the sounds and landscapes that it creates. Well, it's very interesting that um, I'm sure there would be a bit of a common ground with landscape and soundscape, um, which kind of leads me directly into my my next topic. Um, there might be common ground with our landscapes and some of our winters, and I'm wondering, have you noticed a difference in how choir rehearsals run in Finland versus here in North America? Um, have you noticed any sort of um, ways that things operate differently? Does it depend on the choir? I'm sure it does. Um, and this is my experience is limited. So um, I won't say too anything too weighty, but it, it seems that rehearsals um, here are on the whole or generally a little bit shorter than they are in, in the Nordic countries. Um, they're pretty much the, the sort of community choir norm is three hours a time. Wow. Um, and another thing is probably the use of piano. Um, in the Nordic countries, actually, even in very good choirs, we use the piano more than than I would use here. And and I know from you know some of the, the excellent choirs in town, like say the Cantata Singers or Phoenix, that they also use the piano very limitedly. Mm. So that that's definitely a, a difference. And also that there's very seldom a, a separate pianist. So it's the conductor, poor conductors who take care of playing the piano in the Nordic countries. And that's, that's just sort of a tradition. I don't really know why, but, but 
those would definitely be some differences. There also seems to be a really strong emphasis on on dynamics and uh, consonants, play, the placing of consonants here, which is not that big a deal, mm-hmm. I think, in the Nordic countries. But these are these are always sort of interesting local cultural differences. Um, but for the most, of course, it's the same stuff. We try to learn the music and then we try to make sense of it. And, you know, and whatever way works, fine. That's wonderful. Um, so do you have a background in piano then? And do you play piano? Um, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm a double bass player. And that, for me, as a, yeah, that was the one big sort of part of becoming a choral conductor was actually sort of learning to play the piano. I'm pretty good at playing scores, but I'm... I'm a pretty lousy pianist if I had to perform as a pianist. So I'd, I'd rather not. <laughs> and um, I've noticed that you know, many choirs, they do have their in-house pianist. And a lot of our listeners might be familiar with this, but can you just give us a quick rundown of the pianist's role in a choir? I mean, for me, it's to help with rehearsals, assist with rehearsals. What else does a pianist do? Other, are they come to performances, of course. Can you give us any other jobs a pianist might do that we're not aware mm, well, of? Well, yeah. Well, it, it is one thing that it also allows for is... is um, performing pieces which have demanding piano scores. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a good pianist there, why not use those? So that's one one strength that you get from that in-house system. Um, and I think a, a good rehearsal pianist um, who's done it a lot sort of knows what the conductor's going to do next <laughs> and Intuition. also learns, learns to play what is needed instead of just playing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of they, they, they become, it's a special set of skills, I, I feel, for a person who plays the piano with choir and in a rehearsal. So you don't play all the time, you don't play too much, but you know where they need a little bit of help to get through that bit. And, and you know, sort of, you know to anticipate what the conductor's going to want to do next. And I, I've always felt that if you have a, have a, have a pianist who is, experienced in the job and good at the job it, it just is it's just a delight because you're you're set free by the skills of the pianist mm-hmm. and it gives more liberty it gives liberty to the conductor for example to conduct if i have to be at the piano i can't conduct so it, it's you sort of have if you think of the singers they have support both through their ears sort of auditively but also through their eyes um visually, uh, as to what the gestures of the conductor are. So that, in a way, is a, is a very strong set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one of our missions at News West Concerts is to center our activity around education. And I'm actually a grade five French immersion teacher. And Finland is always held up to us as this absolute model of public education. And um, I'm curious if you could tell us a bit more about what music education for young people looks like in Finland and whether it varies between rural and urban areas. So we would love to know more about that. Um, School music is actually not as strong as here, in my view. I mean, I've, Mm. I've heard a lot that it varies very much from school to school, but 
um, the, the sort of building blocks traditionally of the music education system in Finland have been so-called music classes, which were set up in the Hungarian way um, in the 1960s and 70s, mm-hmm. where you, it would, it would, in, within each school you had one class that was specialized in music and had, I don't know, almost a lesson of music every day. And as it was very strongly biased towards singing and choral singing, that was a very, for a long time sort of the very foundation of the, the youth choir movement in the country. That, unfortunately, you know, like schools everywhere have had to cut back and, you know, concentrate on the more productive <laughs> subjects like mathematics and, <laughs> and physics and so on. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that the music class system has, has diminished in, in meaning, unfortunately. Even in Finland. But the other, <laughs> even in Finland. But the other building block is um, an extracurricular music school system, which is nationwide and actually protected by law. There's a law of music schools. Um, And that means that coming back to your question, whether there's a difference um, sort of where you're growing up, there shouldn't be. Mm. It's a very strong nationwide system, which has been built um, really strongly on the the focus of being democratic. So that your possibilities for a musical training should not be dependent on the wealth of your parents or where you happen to be born, but that you have these music schools uh, fairly nearby everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that is really been the, if you think about why are there so many Finnish, say, conductors, orchestral and car conductors around the world, it's it's pretty much built on that system that the, the, the training in those institutes, you have an instrument, you take theory lessons, you play in the orchestra, sing in the choir and so on, and they're a very big part of um, the everyday of of a great number of, of kids in Finland. And they, and even there, you know, with the austerity that, that's gone through all societies in the Western world, um, there's, there have been some cutbacks, but it's still fairly strong and um, gives great results. Hmm. It used to be a very sort of strict... Um, Eastern European system and focused only on classical music. But it, nowadays it's, it's much more flexible um, and takes into account many kind of musics, um, pop, pop music, rhythmic music, folk music, and so on, jazz. So, um, but it's, it's, a, it's still a wonderful system and, and its strength is that it's actually protected by law. So um, the only way it could be, could sort of, be killed off would be by by changing a law, which is not that small a deal. I wonder if our MLAs and MPs in Canada are listening. <laughs> well, I hope they are because I, I think the whole system and now it started with a, off with just the music system, but it's it's grown into so you know there's a um, similar schooling for dance, there's similar schooling for the visual arts, um, mm. for for circus. Um, so it's it's sort of grown into a, a, a big educational arts system, which is extracurricular, um, which means that people really have to commit to it, and it's um, it's not very easy to get into. I mean, it's you apply and and 
um, do the auditions and, and I don't know what the percentages are, but but I think it's about um, 10% hmm. of each generation is in the system. That's amazing. But that's a lot of people in the end. And, and yeah, the, if you think, look at community choirs, amateur choirs in, in, in Finland, their strength is the training of their singers. That they're, you know, I had, it was very typical that, I, that someone came into the choir and they'd played, you know, the violin for 11 years and done all the, all the theory exams and so on. So they were actually really well educated as musicians, even though they did not want to become professional musicians. Is this system highly influenced by Kodai? Early on it was, and especially the mu music class system was, was very strictly Kodai. And it, you know, the solfege system, the Doramis, were, were the basis of that system. The music education system, a little less, but that combines a lot of the, the music education theories, uh, Orf, um, mm -hmm. Suzuki, um, and so on. It, it, it sort of incorporated a lot of the different methods um, over the years, and, and it has room for, if someone wants to be specifically, say, a Suzuki school, it's possible. Right. But and mostly they're, they're quite sort of broad, and, and they, the teachers are uh, music academy trained for the mostly, so um, sort of they, they bring their different backgrounds then to their teaching. Has there been a Russian influence on these academies? Um, to some extent. And especially sort of early on, um, for example, I think the violin is, an, is a good example of an mm -hmm. instrument where there was a very strong Russian school that the, many of the important teachers had studied with Russian teachers. But it varies. It varies from instrument to other. So it's, it's actually, it's hard to find a sort of common music education system behind it um, that would be, that you could place you know, saying it's Hungarian or Russian. Mm -hmm. But influence is definitely from, from the, the strong school, yes. Wonderful. Um, I want to delve deeper into the particular music of Finland. Um, I, I find that we're very lucky to have you here in Vancouver um, with, with your experience. And um, in my research, I, I learned um, that Finland, and I grew up Lutheran actually, uh, that Finland is predominantly Lutheran, or at least officially, um, and that there is a, a religious minority of the Finnish Orthodox Church, um, which again to me is interesting because five years ago I converted to Russian Orthodoxy. Um, and I would love to know, can you kind of distinguish between the choral music used in these two liturgical traditions? What would we hear in a Finnish Lutheran church? Um, I think you have to sort of separate what you have heard and then what you hear now. Yes. <laughs> um, traditionally, it was a very sort of Germanic Lutheran tradition mm -hmm. based on the chorales, um, you know, the, the lineage from, from Bach. Yes. Onwards um, and even before him, but, but sort of very strongly focused around the chorale, the hymns. Um, nowadays, it's it's... It's that still plays a big role, definitely, but um, the stylistic diversity is much greater. 
Mm-hmm. But I think still, sort of worldwide, if you look at sort of church musics around the world, I think you'd still uh, probably think of it as quite traditional, uh, quite classical, which is in part made possible by that the because this church is so big, it actually has taxation rights. Yes. So it's so I mean even even if it's not rich, it's still sort of well off compared to many other churches. And that means um, that every church, every single church has a church musician who are all um, trained very well. I mean, a minimum bachelor's degree, normally master's degree. So that means you always have someone who is, for example, an excellent organist or an excellent singer. So you have a very strong classical basis for anything that happens in the congregations. But of late, of course, you know, with with the diversity of music everywhere and liturgical music too, there's more and more of, um, say, gospel, there's um, rhythmic music, you know, what would you call it? Um, Contemporary Christian. Contemporary Christian, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's broadened in the last 20 years, I think, very radically. But it's still it's still pretty much anchored on the Germanic Lutheran tradition, mm-hmm. whereas then the 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 Orthodox Church is strictly a cappella still. Yes. Um, <laughs> which and and the music is I think if you if you heard it you would sort of connect it with Russian choral music. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's 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 the sort of main tradition, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, and still very choral, the tradition. I mean, every single little church has at least a quartet, and because the church musicians don't play organs or anything in this in the services, they're all they're all really good singers. Yes. So it's it's more of a singing church in that sense, uh, even though you know singing has been so central to the Lutheran church, but. It's even more, I think, in the Orthodox services. Is cent- central ingredient is really the human voice. It is <clears throat> fairly fairly straightforward sort of triadic harmonies. Often, even in the the newer music, mm-hmm. contemporary music, but still, sort of you would you think of it as, as sort of classical, a little bit Russian sounding, rich sonorous music. Yes, for sure, and. Um... I, I will add a personal comment that um, the first time that I heard the, the Nicene Creed sung in Slavonic, I was sold. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, is, it, is, it is really wonderful. It is. My, my, um, one of the, uh, my second cousin's husband is, a, is an Orthodox cantor. Wow. And anytime we have sort of uh, family gatherings on that side of the family, it's, it's pretty cool to listen to them to sing, say, you know, that. It's beautiful. Uh, the Lord's Prayer before a meal or something, all in four parts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it really is it's a strongly singing church. It really is. And I know that um, Russian influence on Finland can be a touchy topic, but I know that that's partly how Orthodoxy weaved yeah. its way into Finnish culture as well. Yeah, and as far as, you know, the arts go, I think, you know, we might have some qualms when we talk about politics and, and so on. But <laughs> but as far as the arts go, I think, you know, the just the, the richness and the depth of Russian 
culture of, you know, literature, music, dance, everything. It, it's it's always a. I've I've always had sort of the greatest love for all that, and mm-hmm. so I mean, we we sort of appreciate the fact that we're so close to Russia and its influence on the cultural side. Maybe politically, we would be. <laughs> Uh, somewhere else. Maybe you would socially distance from their politics. <laughs> that is, that's a very good way. It's almost as if I've given you these questions very far in advance, but I haven't because it leads, it leads right into my next topic, which is digging a bit more deep into um, specifics of, of Finnish culture. Um, and I'm going to jump around a little bit and ask you if you could distinguish for us between Corellian and Nordic culture. Um, and I kind of asked how these manifest in the choral soundscape, but um, I know that Finland has two official languages, Finnish and Swedish. Mm-hmm. And I know that um, the Finnish side is more associated with Corellian culture and Swedish is more Nordic. Um, can you kind of flesh those out for us? And how do those come out in music? Um, well, to start with, the, the Swedish-speaking um, minority is, is quite small in numbers. It's about 6% mm. of the people, so around 300,000. But um, it's culturally and economically, historically, much more important than that. Um, you know, Sibelius was Swedish-speaking. Oh. <laughs> A lot of the artists that we know were actually Swedish-speaking. I didn't know that. So, So it's a really sort of... Uh, much more important than the numbers would suggest. Hmm. Then the Finnish majority um, is is sort of traditionally divided into Western and Eastern cultures, um, which are not very clearly defined at all, but just sort of generalizations. And part of the Eastern influence is Karelianism and, and Karelia. Karelia is is an area which has never been a country of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more a sort of a, what would I call it, sort of an, an identity, probably. Um, which, and it's an area that extends from the eastern parts of, of modern Finland pretty far onto, into Russia, mm-hmm. east eastwards. Um, and there is a language called Karelian, which is closely related to Finnish, but it, it is considered a language of its own. Um, They have the same roots um, back, I think, sort of thousands of years. And Karelian culture is important in the sense that the folk culture that that was sort of used as the building block of a Finnish identity towards the end of the 19th century was quite a lot based on Karelianism. And, for example, the, the, the poetic singing of the Karelian people, um, the, the sort of Finnish national epos um, comes down through that channel. So it's, it's a folk music, which is then uh, sort of became the, the, the building block of Finnish culture. And, and sort of the composers, Sibelius included, went to the east, what is now Russia, and listened to these old singers, folk singers, who told these epic stories of how the world was created and so on, um, mythical figures, 
uh, gods of the forests and so on. And that grew into, because you had to build the identity on something and there was sort of no simple Finnish identity. It was hardly a, a, a written language by that time. Well, it was it's written from the 16th century on, but it wasn't as strong as, for example, Swedish. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it, it was sort of a built identity and this Karelian element was a central element. How it's heard in music is probably the key thing is that those um, folk epic poems were always in 5-4 time. Oh, wow, what a time And so on. Mm-hmm. And that you can hear that 5-4 in, in a lot of the music of of the late 19th century, early 20th century, and it still appears in, in choral music quite often because it's partially the rhythm of the language mm-hmm. um, quite well. So that's the most sort of concrete way of of actually um, hearing it. I don't know what the other ways would be, but... That's wonderful. No, that's definitely a, a central element, I think. And I, I have Russian friends who are from Petrozavodsk, which is part, uh, part of Karelia. So if Sergei and Anya are listening, <laughs> um, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful sort of including a history of how Finland has sort of created its cultural identity. Um, yeah. And, and I, have to, I have to add, my, my family comes from so the, so the western part of Karelia, but still eastern eastern side of Finland, mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's a part of my ad- identity as well. And, and if you wanted to sort of uh, give a an idea of what what the the sort of character of the people is like, I've always said that you know they're the Italians of Finland. <laughs> you know, the ones who are a quick, um, emotional, love to sing, make art. Um, and love to come together. Um, it's a very social group. They've never been seen as very good business people because mm-hmm. they're much more interested in you know just meeting people and talking and, and making art and singing. So, uh, but that okay, that's just a stereotype. But it, it says something, especially the emotionality and then sort of the this. Um, there's a bit more extrovert to the culture on that side. I can imagine and. Um I think it sounds like a region where a lot of rich cultural exchange has happened. Absolutely, and and it's always been on on the boundary of the west and the east. Mm-hmm. So you had the Orthodox Church um, on the east side, and then the, the Western Church, uh, Catholic, and then later Lutheran on the western side. And it's always been that sort of very fruitful ground where cultures meet, languages meet. So. Um, uh, yes, definitely. Beautiful. We're going to move from the east of Finland now to the north, to the Sami people. Um, and in my research for our conversation, um, I discovered that they have a wonderful group of folk songs or spiritual songs, and it's spelt J-O-I-K. Can you pronounce it for us properly? Uh, well, I, I don't know Sami, but the way that we normally Pronounce it is Yoik. Yoik. Okay. So if you if you wrote it with a Y O I K, then you'd probably get it pretty well. I'd probably yoik. get it. 
Um, can you tell us about how, um, Sami culture, um, is it integrated in the choral tradition of Finland? Um, I don't know much about the situation of Sami people in Finland, but, um, I believe there are people that are indigenous to the area. Um, They are uh, one of the only indigenous peoples in, in Europe, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, and, um, they, I think that the, the Sami people used to be spread around the whole country, but they sort of retreated into the wild as um, the population grew. Um, and so they now live in the northernmost parts in, in Lapland. And uh, reindeer husbandry is sort of a very traditional way of life um, mm. since, I think, something like the 17th century. Wow. So that it, it, it's, a, it's an indigenous indigenous people that has been able to to retain some of those the possibilities of, of living a traditional lifestyle that said um, exactly the same problems as, as with indigenous peoples everywhere that their rights have been trampled on and they don't have a say in, in you know the, the land around them and so on mm-hmm. there is a Sami parliament but it's still um, it, it's its powers are limited. And the problem is, is partially because the, the the land of the Sami stretches over Norway, the northern parts of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. So it's also jurisdictionally quite difficult mm-hmm. um, in many ways. But but they are allowed to roam freely over the borders um, because, for example, the the reindeer husband that actually requires moving big distances along with the animals. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it, there are some, some blind spots that we, we should not be proud of at all. Um, there were schools, um, sort of boarding schools, mm. this in the same way, in manner, and then the culture of the Sami was um, certainly not encouraged for a long time. So, I, I mean, there's some very dark sides of that history as well and a lot to to uh, improve um, sounds like canada <laughs> yes i mean and and i i believe that the indigenous peoples of canada and and the sami have a lot of connections in, have been very active in uh, for example in the un in the um, declaration of the rights of the indigenous peoples yes. so there, there are actually strong connections which are found out only once I've been here, and it's been really sort of wonderful to hear that. Um, very similar problems, I think, as, as unfortunately most of the indigenous peoples in the world have mm-hmm. had to go through. Their music um, has not directly been um, taken into choral music. Pretty much for the you know the same kind of problems of appropriation that you have everywhere, and the the yoik is really um, it's not a folk song so much as a, as a traditional form of song mm-hmm. for them. Uh, some of it sounds a little bit similar to to some of the traditional chanting of the First Nations in Canada. Right. Um, there's a bit of the shamanistic in in some of it, and the thing is that I. I believe that in many of the areas that the songs are owned by people, they're the property of someone. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you might you might have your own song, which you sing through your life, and then you might hand on yes. before you die, or then it might just go to the grave with you. So um, using that kind of material is, of course, really problematic because you know it, it's it's sacred and it's um, it's, you know, it's a tradition. property of people. You can't just take it and stuff it somewhere mm-hmm. into uh, a Western musical context. But there are some pieces where um, composers have worked in cooperation with Sami musicians, um, and then they can be really interesting. Um, but in that way, I think you, you, you create something new from different elements, but respecting those elements. And having, you know, that, of course, the indigenous people involved, it makes it quite different. Um, it becomes a collaboration instead of an, a direct appropriation. Um, but it's, it's, it's so what you actually hear it more in in popular music hmm. nowadays. That there are there are a few groups that sing. Um, well, I guess you'd call it something like ethnic music, um, world music. Yes. Who are um, who are Sami, but then are trained as you know through the music academies and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some really interesting stuff on that front. Well, I will have to look into it. Yeah, it's worth listening to. That's very very fascinating. And I think that a lot of what um, Western art organizations and their administrators are facing right now with Black Lives Matter, with a call to represent diversity, and in Canada specifically, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada calling cultural organizations to do better to Indigenous people, I know that my board and my staff, we are all faced with how do we do this appropriately and how do we do this without, um, you know, we can't offer Beethoven on a silver platter to people and say, no, this will, this will cure everything. It's just so ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Completely right. You want to consult with elders and you have to be patient to make an appointment. But I think that, the more we listen and the more we wait and reflect, I actually think we'll come up with more meaningful ways of engaging and being respectful. Yeah. And there are, I mean, there are classically trained musicians who have um, indigenous roots Mm -hmm. and just working together with them, I think is, um, I think that, you know, besides the listening, I think also working together is, is something that often you know, opens hearts and opens minds and, and and something new will be created out of that and we don't really know what it will be. And I think that's the um that is a really interesting area for me that um there's something that we haven't yet even sort of understood or not grasped that we can find together. Mm-hmm. But it, as as you say it has to be has to be in um cooperation and respecting mm-hmm. and it's it's not easy but i think that it's 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 necessary and i think that the time has come and um we we cannot simply um sit in the ivory tower and think that we're offering a you know three michelin star four course meal of bach beethoven brahms and a side of strauss um, yeah. Not that I don't love all of those composers that I just listed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, 
No, this is a really complex question. Sort of no, no easy answers. No, for sure. But at the same time, I don't think, <coughs> you know, uh, I, I still believe there's an intrinsic value to fine arts um, that we don't have to sacrifice. And I think it's, it's more a question of broadening horizons and, and understanding um, than sort of overthrowing everything in one go, because at least I would have pretty much nothing in that case to give anyone. Mm -hmm. you know, what I have to give people is within that art form, but that doesn't mean I have to stick, as you say, you know, I don't have to stick just to Beethoven and just, you know, close my, close my eyes and ears and pretend nothing is happening in the world. That's so right. I think it's a combination of of believing in your own art form, but also being willing to to search sort of new terrain and and listen and and learn and and create something new at the same time. So that those don't sort of uh, they're not mutually exclusive. I definitely agree. Um, we have two more quick questions for you. Um, and the last one is a bit of a fun one and a bit of a surprise, but um, mm -hmm. this is one that you have seen um, from what I gave you, is you've had a lot of experience teaching young conductors. And what are your top tips that you give to young aspiring choral conductors? Because a few of them are definitely going to listen to this podcast. So what are your top tips to young choral conductors? Well, I've found that people who have a passion for the music, for other people. I mean, they, they have a strong will to, to develop and, and help other people grow. And um, those people find their way. So I think the, the very most important thing I would say, just love it. Love mm -hmm. what you do and, and give it what you've got and you'll never know what will come. Um, most of the time our, our possibilities are unearned we just we get given a possibility and then it's just about you know giving your best and hoping that it's enough in that position mm. um, I, the, the passion is is I think the thing that will carry you and because there'll, there'll be disappointments it's yes. just the name of the game unfortunately mm -hmm. the passion will carry you through those and and I think one thing that I would always like to say is that you only learn through failures. Mm -hmm. Because when you actually succeed at something, that's good for your uh, confidence, but you don't normally learn anything. You just notice, oh, that was good. Um, whereas when you fail at something, and I mean failures can be very, very small or very, very big, um, if you sit back, take it on the chin, uh, cry for a while, into your glass of wine and then start analyzing what went wrong what what could I have done differently and if you find something that you could have done differently you could just learn something and that can be you know just a normal rehearsal that you feel that oh this didn't end well that sort of I, I would have so much more preferred a sort of upbeat feeling at the end mm -hmm. so sort of, what, what did I do wrong and the great thing is that you can try next week um, See if, if the thing that you come up with actually was the key. And then those times when you, you actually do come up, sort of come across what was the thing that you did wrong and you correct it, oh, those are so great because you just <laughs> feel that, you know, you've, you've, you've found a problem and you've solved it yourself. 
That's that's a great feeling, and you don't those lessons you don't forget. So that's I would say you know have passion and don't be afraid of failure. Wow, I think that so many uh, musicians should hear that, and it sounds like what you would tell them is to not be afraid of the process of growing. No, and yeah, that's we all grow and grow and grow. and fail and fail and fail, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but uh, you learn something on the way. You do, definitely. Yeah. And our, our final question is just for fun. And we, we caution you to be very careful how you answer because um, so many people will be listening to this in both Canada and Finland, we hope. And just for fun, if Canada and Finland were going to meet in the Olympics or World Cup of Hockey, who is going to win? <laughs> Well, uh, 20 years ago, I would have said Canada every time. <laughs> Nowadays, I'm not so sure. We've been doing pretty well at hockey of late. And, yes. um, you know, I, I would have my hopes, although I do sort of, I still think of Canada as, as the sort of number one hockey country in the world. But, you know, we'll, we'll give you a good fight anyway. <laughs> that is supremely diplomatic. <laughs> it, Kari, it has been an absolute pleasure to spend this close to 45 minute chat with you. I feel already that my knowledge of Nordic and Corellian culture and choral music has just expanded. Um, to our listeners, Kari maintains a fantastic and wonderfully written blog at www.karitrudinen.com and then click on the blog section. He's been going through Finnish music Like, it's nobody's business. If you're looking for Finnish choral music, that's your one stop, one place stop. Um, And Kari, on behalf of Muse West Concerts, I would like to thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. You are our first podcast. And um, I dare say that what follows, I mean, they're going to have such big shoes to fill. This was such a wonderful, rich conversation. So thank you deeply for your contribution. Thank you, Jennifer. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you so much, and have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.